Amen. So today we have come to the second Sunday of Great Lent, the, uh, the Sunday of St. Gregory Palamas. And what we're coming to do today is we're going to celebrate the contribution that he made to the Orthodox Church um, in defending the practice of hesychasm, which is the practice of stillness and, and prayer of the heart, against philosophical attacks from a, um, a Calabrian Greek called Barlow uh, in the 14th century. So St. Gregory himself, he was, uh, obviously this is occurring in the, in the 14th century, but he was, he was born from a wealthy family and his father was kind of in the court of the Byzantine emperor. And he himself was very well educated and he was being raised to be basically working in the court of the Byzantine emperor. But um, very early in his life, he decided to go to Mount Athos. And so he went to Mount Athos and then spent 20 years um, there learning the, the way of hesychasm and so on. And during that time, uh, this, this uh, controversy arose. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. He also was, after that, made Bishop of Thessalonica, um, and we heard about in the hymns, he's a wonder worker and so on. So he's a very important saint in the church, but his contribution is, of course, the defense of hesychasm is what we talk about, but really, what's most important about St. Gregory Palamas is that he defended the orthodox position that we can actually have a true experience of union with God, and that's really important. Um, so... As I was saying, this last Sunday, we talked about the triumph of orthodoxy, and we talked about how um, icons, we have icons because the uh, icons of the saints bear witness that man, who is created in the image and likeness of God, can become holy and godlike through purification, and, um, and so then also bear God's image and reflect that out to the world. And we see the icons around us. We don't have icons on the wall just for pretty pictures. We have the icons because these people expressed Christ through their life. And the, this is what we saw last week. Now, we're, in this week, we're talking about how is it that we can also kind of become like that? What's the kind of life that leads to that? All right? Um, and how is it kind of possible? What, what's the, the foundation for that? So we're kind of continuing this, this theme and um, just briefly, I want to talk about what the whole controversy was about. So, Balaam was a Calabrian Greek and he was a philosopher. And he came to Constantinople in uh, 1338. And very soon after he came to Constantinople, he started causing problems. Because what he said was that the monks on Manathos and other places who said that they had this vision of divine light, when they were praying, that that light was, was not actually God, that was just some created, that was created light. So the union that they would say that they were having wasn't real. Okay, that's what he was saying. And um, he also attacked them for the physical processes that they were using. They used to use some physical techniques, but we won't go into much detail about that. The most important thing that he was saying was that the vision that they're having is not a real vision of God. It's just a vision of this of created light. Okay, so what's the problem with that? First off, I mean, Balaam's coming from a point of view not of experience of actual prayer or in the life of the church. He's coming at it from his 
from philosophy, from a way of thinking about life and about the world, which is alien to what the alien to the way of doing things in the church. His basic presuppositions were that you can only know things about the world, including God, through sense perception. Right? And since God cannot be known through sense perception, you cannot know God. This was his whole thing. Right? So it wasn't that he was talking about something from within the church. It was a, a philosophy that he had taken from Greek philosophy, and he was then interpreting what was happening through, through prayer and in the church through this outside Greek philosophy. And so what does it mean then? If, you, if it's true that what the monks were seeing was just created, a created light, what does that mean? That means that the union with God is not real. When we talk about theosis, what, what are we talking about? If you, can talk, if, you can talk, if you can't say that the union between God and man in that experience of prayer is not real, how can we talk about divinization? How can we talk about salvation? It's a really, really important point. And in the Gospel reading today, it's, it's not exactly the same thing, but in the Gospel reading today, we heard that the paralysed man was brought in to see Jesus by his friends, and it makes a real difference that Jesus was God and not just a man. Right? It makes a real difference because his sins were forgiven, as well as him being healed, his sins were forgiven. So it makes a real difference that it's God that Jesus Christ is God, not just a man. And in the epistle reading, we also heard, we're talking about creation and talking about being seated at the right hand of God. But the writer of Hebrews is saying it's important that it's not just an angel, it's God. And likewise here, it's important that this experience that these monks were having when they prayed was not some created thing, but actually they were participating in God in some way. Okay? Because participating in God actually transforms us. It actually is what makes the Christian life transformative and renews us and brings us more and more to be like Christ. So Gregory basically was, he argued against Balaam's assertions. He was kind of brought out, I think, at the time he was still on Manathos and they prevailed upon him to come out. As I said, he was a very well-educated guy, but he, he didn't really want to get into the controversy. But they kind of dragged him out and said, Gregory, you have to do this. Because no one else could. He was, he was very well-educated. Everyone, all, the monks knew that Balaam was saying the wrong thing, but they didn't have the skill. They didn't have the ability to actually argue with him. You know, It takes, takes a certain amount of training, intellectual training and so on to be able to take on someone who's a philosopher like that. So he was in the position to do it, and they prevailed upon him, so he had to do it. So what he wrote down, and what's left, and you can read it, um, is the triads for defence of the holy hesychasts. And the contribution that he made in theological terms is the distinction between um, essence and energies. And who's ever heard of essence and energies before? Yes, some people have, all right? So essence and energies, it's basically a distinction which is saying that with God, there is, there's an aspect of God which we cannot possibly know, and that's God's essence, right? What God is. What God is in himself. It's complete, you know, because God is completely transcendent. We are created, he is uncreated. He's completely transcendent. It's impossible for us to know what God is in himself, all right? 
It's like even another human being, you can think about it. I, I can maybe, I, I can know Reg. I, I know Reg because I can talk to Reg, I can see him, we can interact, he does things, um, you know, so I can know something about Reg. But what is Reg in himself? I think it's inaccessible to me, you know, even if I think about it as just as a human being. You know, what someone is in themselves is completely hidden. We don't really know that aspect of people. So it's the same type of thing with God. It's com- we, we cannot know what God is in himself. But the energies, and this is what St. Gregory Palamas was saying, God's energies are the things that he, um, are the ways in which he is made known to us in the world, in our human experience of life, which includes, for example, the beauty of nature, and all of those kind of things, the harmony of the world. It also includes all kinds of other things that we experience in the life in the church. And ultimately, it includes things like knowing God through our noose, which is the faculty that God's given us to directly experience his, his energies, actually, and his, uh, his presence in our life through the noose. Um, so that's... I won't go into that too much, but when that's purified, we come to experience God more and more in a kind of more intuitive way. So these two things, the essence and the energies, we cannot know God in his essence, but we can know God in his energies because he's revealed himself to us. In so many different ways, he's revealed himself to us. And so the whole point of this was that this light that the monks were seeing when they pray, that's one of the energies of God. And so because that's an energy of God, that's a real, they're really experiencing God. And as they're being transformed, then their, their whole being is being made light. As the light comes into them, darkness is exposed, they are transformed, it's a transformative thing. So it wasn't a delusion, the union was real. Okay, now for us today, sitting in church, maybe you know, seeing, talking about seeing the divine light is maybe a bit too lofty. I'm not sure that, that many of us are there, you know, that have visions of the divine light maybe. But we would be really mistaken if we, if we thought that God isn't shining his divine light on us all the time, in every place where we are. Just because we don't see it doesn't mean that he's not doing that. Um, if you read, what's, it, what's his name? Um, Saint, Sarah, Saint Seraphim of Sarov's conversation with um, Matovilov. Uh, in that conversation, Saint Seraphim of Sarov, because Matovilov um, is asking about all these things, you know, how do I know that the grace of God is with me and all this kind of stuff, and it's a very long conversation. And towards the end of the conversation, um, St. Sarah of Sarah says, well, look at me. And he says, I can't, you're, you're too bright, you know. You, you, you're blinding me, my eyes hurt. And he's saying, well, he said, but you are as well. You're also bright. And then he says, you should thank God because not even many of the very elect hermits get to see this. So it's kind of rare. This experience of the divine light is a fairly rare thing, all right? So we shouldn't be worried that we don't see the divine light. That's the point, right? We, it's very rare. But we should also remember that God is shining his light in us all the time. Um, so uh, there's, a, there's a morning prayer that expresses this very well. Maybe some of you pray it almost every day, I guess. Christ the true light, which enlightens and sanctifies everyone who comes into the world. Shine the light of your countenance on us, that in it we may see the unapproachable light and guide our steps that we may keep your commandments. And even in the hymns today, it refers to light all the time. Always referring to light, all throughout the hymns. 
So he's always shining his light upon us. And I would encourage you to read that account, St. Seraphim of Sarov's conversation with, um, with Nicholas uh, Matovanov. It's a really good way to kind of get into the idea of what these things are about. So the point is that God's taken the first step to us. We couldn't know God unless he had taken the first step towards us. He has revealed himself through the world around us, through the nature and, and all those kind of things. The fact that we are made in the image and likeness of God, okay, we also reveal something about God to us. Um, and also through the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of God coming, becoming incarnate as a human being on earth. So God has made the first move towards us and he's always ready to shine the light on us, to expose the dark areas of our lives and all that brokenness. And then as we, as we go towards him in response to heal and to clean up those areas of our lives that, are, that need to be cleaned up. But the fact is that we do need to respond and it cannot just be intellectual curiosity. We can't just do it with our mind. If we do that, we're just like Balaam of Calabria trying to understand God from the outside. Not possible. You have to live the life of Christ to come to know Christ. Just as with any human being, I could say that I know someone because I read about them in a book. Do I really know them? You don't really know them if you just read about them in a book. You actually have to go and be with them, experience some of life with them, and then you come to know them. So it cannot just be an intellectual endeavour. That leads to pride. We really need to live the life of Christ. And of course, we know how to do that. We do the things the church has told us to do. And especially now intensively, we've got fasting and prayer and all those other things. This is what we need to be doing all the time. And as we do that, God's light is coming more and more into our lives and we are being made more like him as we go along. But on the other hand, we shouldn't neglect as we were talking about Sir Gregory Palamas, he was very well, very well educated, and we shouldn't neglect that either. So the experience of God is, is primary, it's of primary importance, but we shouldn't be against the proper training of our minds. Um, so Gregory used his long experience of hesychasm and of prayer, and he took that experience, but then he was able to express it in arguments towards Balaam he was able to express it because he was so well educated. Okay? So that training was not wasted at all. It was part of who he was and it was used to good effect and for the benefit of the church. So we shouldn't be against training our minds as well. In fact, all of us should be well versed enough in our faith that we can put into words the experience that we have of walking with Christ. Because People don't need to hear me talk about something that I read from a book. Not really. If they want to know something about something from a book, they'll read the book. Right? They really, if people want to know something about God from me, if, if they want to hear me talk about God, they want to know what, how my experience of God has been. But I need to be able to express that, and I need to be able to express it well. I need to be able to express it in a way that doesn't cause problems for them. In other words, it's well expressed within the bounds of what the church says about the Christian life. My way of speaking about God, even from my own experience, needs to be within the bounds of what the church says. And so we all need to be well educated in that sense. Well educated enough to know what the church says about various things so that I, when I express something about 
my life in Christ, how it's, how it's travelled, that it's, it comes out the right way and is helpful to that person and not detrimental to me. So education is really important. All right. So I think that's all I really wanted to say. We, we basically need to um, have the two things. We need to be... Well, we always need to be thinking about actively living the life of Christ, but we also need to know that our minds are being properly formed so that when we speak, we speak well to people. And not just speak well, but we speak words that bring life to them, bring the presence of Christ to them to help them in the place where they are. Okay? It's what people want to hear. I guess today, if we went outside there, Almost nobody really knows about Christianity anymore, especially young people. They don't really have an experience of God or Christianity or anything anymore. So when they, if, if we have a chance to speak to them, we may be the only person who ever gets a chance to speak to them. We should speak well. So may God give us the strength as we go through Lent to both pray but also train ourselves to be good witnesses for our God. Thank you.